So let me pray and uh, we'll get going on our lesson. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had have together. We're thankful for your word and the fact that you have given us your word for us to understand that um, this is information, this is truth presented to us by you through prophets so that we can know it and, and by that know you and what you're doing in the world. And so we give you thanks for that. Lord, help us to be able to use this information to be more pleasing to you in what we do and say, but also in how we think. We want to be right thinkers. And so we come to you in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I believe we're in the book of Jeremiah now, right? We finished up Micah last time. So we're going to be start in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a big book. And um, therefore, we're not going to try to go through all of it. And um, uh, this is a... Jeremiah is a bit of a complicated book because it's not put together chronologically. Like you go to chapter 25, in chapter 25, the events there take place before chapter 21. So it's not a chronological book. So Jeremiah put it together based on certain themes. And uh, part of that is going to be like uh, the, the theme of judgment or warning towards Israel, a theme of comfort towards Israel, a theme of judgment towards Gentile nations, things like that is how it's kind of put together. Um, so just keep that in mind as we go through this, that uh, Jeremiah is a thematic book, not written to record events in chronological order. And so I think we have maybe five or six passages to go through here. Some are bigger than others. I, I tried to pick some that were kind of short to kind of go through, but then we're going to hit a big long one that's going to take us a while to go through. So first, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, verses 12 through 18. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. And again, as we, as we begin in our study of Jeremiah, we have to remember that uh, Jeremiah is a 7th century, 6th century B.C. prophet. And so he is going to be a prophet during the reigns of the latter kings of Judah. He's a prophet at the time Daniel goes into exile. He's around. He's prophesying at that time. He prophesied. He began his ministry about 20 years before Daniel goes into captivity. And um, so he's, he would have been familiar 
to Daniel. Uh, very likely because of Jeremiah's, the nature of Jeremiah's ministry, where he's talking to kings and priests, it's very likely that Daniel would have, they probably wouldn't have known each other per se. I mean, they're not peers. In other words, you know, they're, they're not on the same group of people. You know, Jeremiah is a good bit older than Daniel. But they existed at the same time, and Daniel would have certainly been aware of Jeremiah. So keep that in the back of your head as we go through here. And uh, also keep in the back of your mind that we have this pattern that God has already established with the children of Israel that was established in, in the law, in, in the Torah. You know, his pattern is obey, you receive blessing. Disobey, you're going to receive discipline, chastening. So that's the way it goes. And <clears throat> so Israel now has a kingdom. It's the kingdom of Israel. And part of the warning that God gives to the nation of Israel is that if they don't obey, if they continue to do wickedness, God's going to remove the kingdom from them. Okay, so he's constantly warning them about that. So just keep that in mind as we go in here. We don't need to, I mean, we're studying this theme of the kingdom, but we don't need to establish that that's the point of view that Jeremiah is taking because almost all the prophets take that view. So we don't need to reestablish it over and over again. So Jeremiah 3, verse 12 and 13, we see here the call to repentance because of sin. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to the alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. So God is calling Israel back to himself. He's saying to them they need to repent. And he uses um, all sorts of terms for sin here. He uses iniquity. Then it says in verse 13, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed. That's another word. So he's, he's using this, and he, then he even says a little bit later at the end of verse 13, and you have not obeyed my voice. That word obey is the word listen. You have not listened to my voice. So anytime you see the word listen in the Bible, it's not just the word to hear, you know, like... Yeah, you can, you can hear somebody talk, but you're not necessarily listening to them. Now, listening means you understand what they're saying, and then you are going to act 
upon that. So this is Israel's not doing this. So God is calling them to return to him, uh, to repent because he's merciful. He has promised them mercy. Notice at the second part of verse 12, I will not cause my anger to fall upon you for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Verse 13, only acknowledge, here's the contingency. Here's the contingency to receive God's mercy. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Only fess up to it. Only admit that you're wrong. So there's the call to repentance because of sin. And in verses 14 through 15, we have the call to repentance because of future blessing. Verse 14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Now, what's that sound like? That doesn't sound like Jeremiah. What prophet does that sound like? Hosea, right? Hosea, he uses marriage as a metaphor. For I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. Talking about a return and he's going to bring him back to Zion. Now, what's that the name of? What is Zion? Jerusalem. That's the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. Zion. And he says, I will give you shepherds. See that? I will give you shepherds. Now that is going to be picked up again by Jeremiah um, in chapter 23. He picks up on this idea of God giving Israel shepherds in chapter 23. So God is calling them to repentance, return. Return, okay, return, calling them to repentance because of future blessing. For I am married to you and I'm going to bring you back to Zion and I'm going to give you shepherds, uh, good shepherds, according to my heart. These will be shepherds who take care of you like they ought to. Verse 16, here now we have the description of Israel's spiritual apathy. Okay, this is their spiritual apathy. Verse 16, then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. So I think this is a description of the downward spiritual condition of the nation. Uh, they're coming to the point where they're multiplied and they increase in the land, that there's days of ease, and they say, we're not going to pay attention to the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Don't need that anymore. They're not going to think about it. They're not going to remember it. 
They're not going to visit it. They're not going to pay any attention to it at all. And I think this is describing the, the downward trend in the nation of Israel. And of course, we know from our study of the kings of the Jews that when you had an ungodly king, which direction did the nation go? They became more and more ungodly. So there's spiritual apathy. In verse 17, we see the description of spiritual revival. Spiritual revival. It says, At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to, Israel, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So we're, we're given this picture that uh, might seem a bit confusing because you have this call to repentance because of their sin. You got a call to repentance because of future blessing. Then he kind of shifts a little bit and he deals with the current state of spiritual apathy in the land. And then he's going to deal with the spiritual revival that takes place. Okay, so this is all future from this point in Jeremiah. It's all future. It's all future. And so here with the spiritual revival, we see that Jerusalem is elevated. It says, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Not the throne of David, not the city of David. The throne of the Lord. And then what happens? All the nations shall be gathered to it. To the name of the Lord in Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So they're not going to follow their evil hearts. So we see that there is this spiritual revival that is predicted. And in verse 18, we see a little bit more of the blessings. We see the future unity in the land. The future unity in the land. It says, in those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. Now, that's why I'm using the word unity. They're going to walk together. And they shall come together out of the land of the north... To the land I have given as an inheritance to their fathers. So they're coming from the land of the north. And remember, Assyria, even Babylon, even though when we look at them on a map, they're over to the east of Israel. All of those countries come out of the north. That's how they come into Israel. So it could be referring to that. It could be referring to other peoples at this point, but we're not going to get wrapped up in that. What I want you to see here is that there is this future unity. Now, when Jeremiah writes, what's the problem? What's the problem? Is there unity when Jeremiah writes? No. Why not? What happened to the northern kingdom? That's right. They're already scattered. They're already scattered to the wind. 
They've already been taken captive. So obviously there can't be a unity there. So in order for there to be a unity for Judah and Israel to walk together, what has to happen? Yes, right. They got to be gathered together. And when they, they're gathered together, what does this verse say God's going to do? Take them back to the promised land. That's right. That's right. So in this passage, we see that there's several things related to the time of the kingdom. Repentance, revival, and return to the land in unity. So when we think about the kingdom and we think about, when we think about the kingdom either being removed or restored to the nation of Israel, it's removed because of sin, where they have turned their back on the Lord and rebelled. It is restored when they repent and there's a spiritual revival that happens in the nation. And then they're going to return to the land. God's going to gather them together and return to the land. So we, we see these things in this passage. Any, any questions about that uh, in the kingdom here in Jeremiah 3? These verses. All right, let's go to Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, just verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. And here we see this revival piece coming in. Um, the kingdom will be marked by the spiritual revival of Israel. So verse 1 says, if... if if you will return to me, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear, the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Now, I think when, it's taught, when it says nations here, it's probably referring to Israel and Judah, not just Gentile nations. I think it's talking about Israel and Judah. So, first we see there's encouragement to return, but then we see that there's a qualification of what it means to return. So in verse 1, it says, if you will return, O Israel, return to me. Now, what's that look like? What's that look like? It look, what's that? Well, if they're in sin, they're not returning. You know, when the Lord says, return to me, if, if you will return, return. If you'll do it, do it. And what does returning look like? It looks like them putting away the abominations, their abominations out of his sight. That's what it looks like. So to return to the Lord means they have to turn away from their wickedness. 
their wicked idolatry and rebellion that they have been engaged in. So a couple things to keep in mind here. First, God's blessing of Israel in this passage, his blessing of Israel and, and, and Judah, is conditioned upon or it's contingent upon their repentance. No repentance, no blessing. Secondly, the word return. If you think about the word return, what does it imply? If I say return, what's that tell you? Okay, you're, you're, you gotta go where? Back, right? Back. So if, you, if you're returning back to where you came from, how did you get where you're at? Right, you had to leave the original place, didn't you? So if you're returning home from being at church, you had to originally start at your home, right? Somewhere along the line, you had to start at home. So when we see the word return here, in any, anywhere in these passages, it implies that Israel first had turned away from God. Okay, anytime you see that word return, the implication is there's sin involved, that they've turned from God and they followed other gods. Um, so when it talks about this return here, it's marked by a spiritual revival that goes beyond words and that is expressed in action by putting away their abominations and swearing the Lord lives. So it's not, they can't just say, okay, Lord, we're returning. We're ready to return. They, they have to uh, put, put their uh, actions where their mouth is. Fourthly, we see here that we can ask this question. Since Jeremiah was written in the early 7th, late 6th centuries, has there ever been an observable return in the history of the world since that time that matches this passage? So we can ask that question. This is talking about a return. A question we, got, we have to ask is, has Israel ever returned? Like this passage says. Have they ever done it? Yes, they have. Let me, let me give you some conclusions here. So the contingency, the contingency here of the blessing of the Lord is that they return. And that tells us, that indicates to us why John the Baptist, why Jesus, and why the 12 apostles preached repentance to the Jews. Because that's what they understood. That's what the prophets had always told them. Repent, return and repent. It's basically the same thing. Okay, repent. Change your mind. Return to me. Zachariah says it over and over. Return to me and I will return to you. 
So this is why Jesus, as you get into his ministry, and John the Baptist and the apostles preach this repentance to the Jews. They preach repentance and not believe. They don't say believe. They say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. So that gives us a little background to that ministry. Um, historically, secondly, another conclusion that we can draw here is that historical returns of the Jews have happened, but they've never been spiritual in nature. They've always been just physical. So there's one that's recorded in the Bible, and there's another that's recorded just in history. Do you, do you know where the record of the return of the Jews in the Bible is recorded? Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, we have the return of the Jews back to the promised land. How many returned? Not all of them. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm, Ezra gives us the number. I didn't look it up. He gives us the number of how many people returned with him. And I'm sure there's a few more here and there. But out of the mass of Jews that had been deported, uh, a small portion returns back to the land. Uh, were they spiritually vibrant? when they returned? The answer to that is no. There's at least two revivals that take place in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And of course, uh, the prophet uh, Haggai and Zechariah are both preaching to those exiles in the land. And, and they're both saying, you guys are pitiful. You're spiritually bankrupt, you know. You got your priorities all wrong. So there's not a great spiritual revival happening with that biblical return. Now, what's the other return? What's the historical return? Yes, the modern, the creation of the modern state of Israel. You have all these returns. Now, has that, is, is that a spiritual thing? No, no. It's totally secular. Totally secular. So... There has, no been, there has never been a return like we see described here in Jeremiah chapter 4. And we need to keep in mind that no amount of political maneuvering or shifting of people groups from one place to another results in the kind of return that is mentioned here in this passage. So as long as the Jews continue to reject their Messiah they will not receive the blessings that God has intended for them. As long as they keep on rejecting their Messiah, they're not going to receive a blessing. They can be in the land, but God didn't put them there. And for them to receive the blessings that God intends and have the kingdom restored... They, gotta have, they have to accept their Messiah. And God has to put them in the land. He hasn't done that yet. Any questions about these verses in chapter 4? 
Okay, let's go to chapter 16. Chapter 16, two verses here. Verses 14 and 15. Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Let me read them. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said. It's not going to be said any longer. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. So in this passage, we see that there is a shift to the future. Okay, we see this anticipation phrase. The days are coming. Right? The days are coming. Some places... You'll see a phrase like this. It'll say, the days are coming and now are. Okay, that tells you the prophetic aspect is coming to fulfillment right then. But that's not what it says here. It just says, the days are coming. And we know that means that's a future. That's anticipation language, right? It makes you anticipate what's coming. So there's a shift to the future, to this anticipation. And notice the shift in the reputation of the Lord. Okay, notice the shift in the reputation of the Lord, how the Lord is known. Look at the end of verse 14. So it says, and no more, it's not going to be said anymore. Nobody's going to say the Lord lives, the one who brought the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt. Nobody is going to say that anymore. That's not going to be the thing that is the Lord's reputation. And, and you remember, all through the history of Israel, that's exactly how the Lord was known. He was not only known that way to the Jews, he was also known that way to the Gentiles, right? Oh, we know your God is the one who brought you out of Egypt. Of course, the Jews always point back that. So if he's not going to be known for that, what's he going to be known for? Verse 15. He's going to be known as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and out of all the lands where he had driven them. Okay, so if he's going to be known by that, that must mean he's going to do it, right? He's going to do it. And if he's going to be known by that, that means he's got to do it before he's known that way. So what's, what, what, what time are we talking about here? What's the time frame for this? Well, the, the time frame is going to be after the Lord's going to have this reputation after 
he regathers the children of Israel and puts them back in their land. Okay? So, from our, from the way we put the Bible together, the way we, we read the Bible, that means in the millennium, the Lord's going to be known not as the God who brought the children of Israel out of the Exodus or through the Exodus. He's going to be known as the God who gathered them from all over the earth and brought them back to the promised land. One of the major mistakes that people make in their thinking about the kingdom and the end times in general, is that they disconnect what they think about the kingdom from all of God's covenantal promises to the nation of Israel, but they specially disconnect their view of the kingdom, their view of end times, from the land covenant. Totally disconnected. I mean, it's like it doesn't even exist. So if someone holds, if someone might hold, and I'm just using this as a hypothetical, this is not what uh, I hold to, and neither do you. But if someone held that Jesus is at the present time ruling and reigning over the entire earth, if they held to that, in order for them to be consistent with this passage and passages like it, they must also hold that the children of Israel are ethnic Jews. Okay? So if Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning because it, the Bible says he's going to, so they just say, well, he's ruling and reigning now. So he's the Messiah. His ruling and reigning means he is fulfilling the role of the Davidic king. Okay? So, and I think everybody believes that, that Jesus is going, is going to fulfill the role of the Davidic king, or is. We would say he's going to, but some people would say he is. But if you, if you take all that, if you accept all that, you have to accept that the children of Israel are ethnic Jews. Notice in verses 14 and 15 here. What's the term that God uses for the Jews? The children of Israel. Now, who could that be? I mean, if we were to take that very literally, and that is the way we should take it. If they are the children of Israel, whose children are they? I'm looking for a person's name. Jacob, right. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. The children of Israel are Jacob's children. So they all come from Jacob. Yeah, that seems pretty narrow to me. That's, that's ethnically narrow. 
There's not a whole lot of diversity there, is it? <laughs> In our, our culture of diversity, there's not a whole lot of diversity. So the children of Israel have to be, they're ethnic Jews. Notice also here that the Jews have to have been scattered by God. Look at the middle of verse 15 there where it says, who, who uh, brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he, that's the Lord, had driven them, where he's pushed them out to those lands. He scattered them. Okay, so you got to accept that too. That's, I mean, that seems pretty straightforward, right? That's what the verse says. So the people who have been scattered by God must be the same people group who are going to be gathered by God. If we're talking about the scattered group, that means the gathered group is the same. The group that we're talking about is scattered and gathered. It's the same group of people. And of course, the place where Israel is returned to, is gathered to, is the land, right? It says, I'll bring them back into, oh, then we got this pesky word right here. What's that word? And I will bring them back into there. Oh, it's their land. Must be the land they previously possessed. Huh. It's their land. It belongs to them. It doesn't belong to them just because he brings them back there. It belongs to them before he brings them back there. And if that's not enough, he goes on and he qualifies their land with this little phrase, which I gave to their father. So that makes it, so the land we're talking about is the promised land, the land of Israel. So there's no confusion here at all about how this fits with the kingdom. There is a Jewish uh, aspect, controlling aspect to the kingdom where God is going to bring them back from being scattered all over the earth, which he's going to do. By the way, it doesn't make sense if God scatters them, God can gather them. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to put them in their land, the land that he gave to their fathers as an inheritance. Um, so while they're, you know, people don't like that. People don't like that. They want, they want all of this to be related to the church. Because this is clearly talking about the restoration of Israel. But how can it be related to the church? How can you make this relate to the church? It just doesn't seem to fit to me at all because there's certainly ethnic Jews in the church, right? We agree with that. There are Jews who are in the church. But the church is not equivalent to ethnic Israel. Right? We're not. We're not ethnic Israel. In fact, the church by definition 
cannot be based on any ethnic identification. Right? We know that from the New Testament, Colossians 3.11, where there is neither Jew, or excuse me, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So there the church is not defined by any ethnic identification. So I think the ethnic nature of this passage, children of Israel, the ones who God scattered, he scattered specific people, he didn't scatter people in general. The ones who he gathers, he gathers specific people and he gathers them to a land. So I think the, the ethnic nature of this passage resists any attempts to turn Israel into the church or for the church to be absorbed into Israel or for Israel to be absorbed into the church. The connection between the ones who are scattered and the ones who will be gathered is so tight, no Gentile can squeak in. Can't get a Gentile in there. So you can't take this passage in any kind of normal sense and then reject that the ethnic nation of Israel has a place in the kingdom. You can't, you can't interpret the Bible literally and say there's no future for Israel. There is a future for Israel. Now, I found it interesting as I was looking at some commentaries on this passage that as a rule, as a rule, the at least the commentaries I, that I have access to neglect not only the implications of this passage, this text, but they neglect the words of the text. Most commentaries sum up these verses with something about a new greater exodus. That's all they talk about, this new greater exodus that God is going to do. So the old exodus is the exodus from Egypt. The new exodus is the exodus from all these other countries and everything. So they focus on that. Well, this is just, God's going to do something greater or has done something greater that the first exodus points to this second exodus. They do this with no comment on when this happened, how this happened, or why this happened. They just, they just turn it into a general, vague moral truth. It's like, what is the, you know, the Bible's very specific. The Bible just doesn't speak in generalities like that. It's very, very specific. Even, even premillennial commentaries are just like vague. It's like there's no definite, it's like they're afraid to say what the passage clearly says. And I think that's for several reasons. First reason is most premillennialists are embarrassed to be premillennialist. <laughs> Secondly, they hide behind scholarship 
there are several scholars who think these two verses don't belong here, that they've been plugged in, okay? They say the, there's, there's been a corruption in the text. Well, there might be a corruption in some manuscript somewhere where you can't read these verses, but we have more than one manuscript, and they have the verses, so that's not a good answer. Others had behind academics and they say well this is the same passage that is found in chapter 23 verses 7 and 8 and that's true almost the exact same words and they say well they took it out of chapter 23 and they put it back in chapter 16 well that doesn't make any sense do you think jeremiah could have repeated himself on purpose I mean, we, we repeat ourselves all the time. Maybe sometimes it's not on purpose, though. But Jeremiah's writing, he could repeat himself on purpose. Furthermore, the nature of the way Jeremiah has uh, compiled his book would suggest to us that he would repeat himself. It shouldn't surprise us that he does, because it's a thematic book, not a chronological book. But I think the, probably the main reason that commentators are so vague on passages like this is that uh, the church at large demands them to be, to just give these moral generalities from the Old Testament and not particular specific teaching because that's too much, that's too hard for people in the pew you do realize that most seminaries and most pastors think you're in third grade. You realize that, right? Out, out in broader church world, most pastors speak to the congregation like they're imbeciles. Like they can't know anything. They can't study anything. And I mean, yeah, you got this little group over here. who They know a lot. But as a general, they don't have very high expectations for the congregation. And because of that, you get these moralized passages out of the Old Testament where, in fact, what you find is not just general moralization. You find very specific teaching about very specific topics. So that's what we're trying to do here trying to give a very specific teaching from, from what these verses say, trying to repeat what these verses teach. And they teach that there's going to be a time in the future where God is going to bring back the children of Israel who he has scattered, and he's going to put them back in the land. And when he does that... People will say, the Lord, he is God because he brought back the Jews from all over the earth where they had been scattered by him. He brought them back and he put them in the land just like he said to the fathers. Going to do it. So that's how the Lord's going to be known in the millennium. Okay, let's... Um, Let's go to chapter 18. 
and we'll just give a little bit of a more or less of an introduction here because in this section I want to cover chapter 18 through 33 okay and this is going to be it for Jeremiah but it's a big section to cover but it would be I think it'll be helpful for you to see what's happening in the book of Jeremiah to put this to, together so I'm not sure how this is going to go exactly, <laughs> but I, as I was looking at it, and I had probably six other passages picked out in Jeremiah, all in between chapter 18 and 33, I was like, well, wouldn't, we probably should just kind of overview, do a thematic overview of these uh, chapters just dropping down every now and then to pick up some detail instead of just going in and out in and out in and out in and out now we're not going to cover everything we're going to we're going to fluff over some chapters pretty rapidly but uh, we're going to try to at least keep on track and uh, focus just on a few places um, so it's generally the book in the book of Jeremiah it's generally accepted that chapters 1 through 20 are in some way about Israel's sin and their need of repentance. Chapters 1 through 20. Chapter 21 through 29 generally acknowledge that these things are about judgment and chapter 30 through 33 is about comfort or restoration. Okay, so that's the last good news. Chapter 33 is the last good news in the book of Jeremiah. So that's why we're going to stop right there at 33. So the first thing I want you to see is from chapter 18 to chapter 21, we have this idea that the kingdom is going to be removed because of sin. It's going to be removed because of sin. In chapter 18, we see that there's a warning but the warning goes along with repentance still being available. All right? So the warning comes from Jeremiah, you know, repent from your sins, return to God. Repent, repent, repent. Here's the warning. You, if you don't repent, the Lord's going to judge you. And in chapter 18, up to chapter 18... They can always do that. The children of Israel can always do that. So in, in the first 11 verses, in the first 11 verses, we see the imagery of the potter. The imagery of the potter as an expression of God's character. So let me put that in reverse order. God's character is expressed through the imagery of a potter. So in verses 1 through 5, or verses, actually verses 1 through 6, I think, God is the potter. Okay, God is the potter. It says, verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying. So this is what God tells Jeremiah to do. Verse 2. Arise and go down to the potter's house. Okay, now, when you go through town, what's on every corner around here? 
What's on every corner around here? Go through town. Used car lot. It's on every corner, right? A potter's house would be the same way in the ancient world. I mean, because everybody needed clay vessels, right? You, that's what you ate off of. That's what you put water in. That's what you stored everything in. They didn't have plastic bags. They didn't have tubs, you know, the, the plastic tubs that you can put food in. They didn't have Tupperware or anything like that. They had these clay vessels, bowls, jars, that type of thing. So where'd you get that? You got that from the potter, right? The potter made that. And, you know, these, I mean, we could support, our family could support a potter and him sending his 12 kids to college if, if we treated all of our stuff the, like <laughs> it, it was not strong. I mean, we drop stuff all the time. Plates, cups, glasses. And I don't know how many glasses have been dropped in our house, and you're just amazed it didn't shatter. So we would always be down at the potter's house. He's at, you know, so there's potter houses everywhere. So God tells Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. Go down and see the potter. Middle of verse 2. And there... I will cause you to hear my word. So in other words, go down there. And when you get there, I'm going to tell you something. Verse three, then I went down. So Jeremiah is telling us first person. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. So he's at his potter's wheel. By the way, the potter's wheel, I believe, was invented by the Sumerians. Sumerians. That would be over in the Fertile Crescent. Uh, so he's making something on his wheel. Verse 4, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he's making it on this wheel, and you all have seen something like this. The wheel is spinning, and so that's turning the lump of clay, and he shapes it. And for some reason, there's, maybe there's a rock or something that is still in the clay, it catches his finger and it takes a big old swipe out of the clay, the wet clay. So it's marred in the hand of the potter so that he made it again into another vessel. So he starts over, starts over. As it seemed good to the potter to make. He's like, well, I'll just do something else. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. So, so Jeremiah sees this. He's telling us what he observed. And then as, after he saw this work of the potter, the Lord tells him something. The word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I, that's the Lord, not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So interestingly, the word potter is the word yotzar. Yotzar. That's the word potter. The verb form of that word shows up in Genesis chapter 2. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed Yisar, formed man from the dust of the ground. Verse 8, same chapter. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 19 of that same chapter. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Now, when it uses that word, Yassar, in Genesis 2, it's talking about God creating. God's authority, position, and power to create. That same word, same root, is used of a potter who creates a vessel out of wet clay. Now, when we think of it, when we think of it that way, we see that this imagery of a potter is really being used to show that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the ones that he formed. Particularly here, it says, O house of Israel. But he's sovereign. Um, he can do with Israel what he wants to do. But God in his sovereignty always includes man's response to him. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 7. Did I read verse 6? Yeah. Verse 7 7 and 8, then 9 and 10. And well, actually, we're supposed to be done. Let me just read them. The instant I speak, that is, the Lord speak, concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom. Okay, this is what he says about this nation and kingdom. To pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it. Okay? He's going to wipe it out, that kingdom out. Verse 8. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. That's the word that means change my mind. I will change my mind about the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Verse 9. And the instance I, instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it. So that's establish it, build it up, bless it. Verse 10. If a nation does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it, that I would bless it with. So this imagery of the potter expresses God's sovereignty that he can do whatever he wants to do with the nation of Israel and any nation. And what God then says that I'm going to do is that even if I have said... I am going to destroy you. If you turn from evil and turn to righteousness, 
I'm not going to destroy you. If I have said, I am going to bless you, but you turn to wickedness and you turn away from me, I'm going to change my mind and I am going to destroy you. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go together. God is sovereign in the sense that he can do anything he wants, and he's sovereign in the sense that he can make a plan. But in God's sovereignty, he has decided, he has planned that he will give man the opportunity to respond to him, respond to truth. And when man responds properly to God, God blesses him. So we'll stop right there. That was probably a pretty heavy chunk to end on. But, uh, <laughs> oh well, there's where I just put a bark there in your uh, notes. At uh, chapter 18, we'll come back and we'll pick that up right there. I'll review a little bit and we'll be through. Okay, so let me pray and then I will turn this thing off and take any questions or comments that we have. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time.